This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Over the weekend, Andrew Yang was interviewed by CNN's Jim Acosta. And um, let me tell you, this interview did not go well for Andrew Yang. In fact, I'd argue that it was a complete and utter disaster. Because in this interview, Andrew Yang could have made the case for his party, but instead he ended up revealing how uninformed, out of touch, and quite frankly, vapid he is when it comes to the most pressing political issues of our time. Because not only does he not tell us any of the forward party's political views, but he just tries to ride the fence, but he doesn't do it in an effective or persuasive manner, and it just makes him look really unserious. So uh, let's talk about this. There's a couple of clips that I want to play for you, but this is the first one. And let me ask you about your new forward party, because uh, you say it's an attempt to appeal to what you say is the, the moderate common sense majority. It's also the same name as your book. Um, is this an attempt to pump up book sales? Well, uh, I'd have to say this would be a pretty silly way to go about it, given that we <laughs> have co-founded a national party uh, that now has tens of thousands of Americans signed up, uh, co-chaired by former governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. And the fact is 62% of Americans But are you just promoting yourself, I guess, is what I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, are you just out there promoting uh, yourself <laughs> with this? Uh, again, Jim, that there, there are, as you can uh, easily imagine, there are hundreds of better ways uh, to go about uh, promoting a, a, a book than starting a political party to do so. I mean, I, I'm building this party because 62% of Americans want it. We're more polarized than ever. And the fact is the two parties have divvied up the country so that 79 to 90% of races are uncompetitive. Most of the people watching this right now aren't even living under a two-party sister system. They're living under one party. Now, what Andrew Yang said right there is technically true. The problem is that the mere existence of the forward party or any alternative to the Democrats and Republicans, for that matter, is not going to fundamentally change the institutions, emphasis on institutions, that created the conditions that led to this duopoly. It's called Duverger's Law. Now, he hasn't addressed Duverger's Law, and he's barely talked about things that he could do to maybe subvert Duverger's Law. But for those of you who don't know, this is what Duverger's Law is. Now, I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia definition because, believe it or not, I tried to pull up the Oxford definition, and it was less correct than Wikipedia because they claimed that Maurice Duverger, who created Duverger's Law or was named after, was a political scientist when that's not actually true. He was a sociologist, but that's neither here nor there. This is the definition of Duverger's Law. In political science, Duverger's law holds that single-ballot plurality rule elections such as first-past-the-post structured within single-member districts tend to favor a two-party system. The discovery of this tendency is attributed to Maurice Duverger, a French sociologist who observed the effect and recorded it in several papers published in the 1950s and 1960s. In the course of further research, other political scientists began calling the effect a law or principle. As a corollary to the law, Duverger also asserted that proportional representation favors multi-partyism as does the plurality system with runoff elections. And that right there is what Andrew Yang fails to address. 
to his credit, he does say we should have ranked choice voting. And we'll talk about the platform in a second here. But ranked choice voting in and of itself may not actually ameliorate the issue because what the ranked choice voting will do is it will make third party candidates more viable. Yes, that's true because it eliminates the so-called spoiler effect. The problem is that what we really want to do is make it so the system itself is not majoritarian and we have a more proportional system. We change the district magnitude, meaning that rather than all of us just having one representative, perhaps we have two, three, maybe four representatives. So that way, if our first choice doesn't get elected or the party who we vote for usually doesn't get elected, well, there's another person that will get elected. So you have to make the system more proportional. Now, this is no easy task, but you're not, not just going to create a multi-party system by sheer force of will. What you have to do is change the institutions. Now, in the event Andrew Yang created this party or formed it as an organization to drive actual electoral reform, then I would be on board because I think we need something like this. Even though there are other organizations that are fighting for electoral reform, if this is another one, then great. But the problem is that just simply saying we need ranked choice voting isn't a solution. How are you going to do this? How are you going to enact ranked choice voting? Are you going to use this organization as a vehicle to create ranked choice voting ballot initiatives in states where that's possible? He doesn't come up with any solutions. It's all vague. And you can tell he hasn't thought this through. And Jim Acosta saw it, hence why he asked pretty bluntly, uh, are you doing this to promote your book? Ouch. That is a CNN host on mainstream media seeing through your grift. If Jim Acosta can see through you, and realize that you're a grifter, you're being a little bit too conspicuous, Andrew Yang. Now he responded by saying, there are hundreds of better ways to go about promoting a book. Really though, is there? Because I think that, you know, if you name this party after your book, then when you Google forward party, perhaps your book also comes up and, you know, win-win. I mean, perhaps, look, let's be extra charitable and assume that he genuinely believes in this. Either way, you clearly haven't talked to political scientists. You clearly haven't talked to experts. You clearly haven't talked to representatives or grassroots organizers at the state level who could, in theory, help you enact this agenda to get electoral reform. I mean, the Green Party has been going at this for decades. Talk to them about electoral reform and some of the barriers that third parties deal with. But he's not really addressing that. And that is indeed a problem. Now he says, uh, I'm building this party because 62% of Americans want it. We're more, po we're more polarized than ever. And the fact is that the two parties have divided up the country. So 79 to 90% of races are uncompetitive. Now, this is true. He's correct about that. So again, he accurately diagnosed one of the problems here. But if you're going to really tackle the duopoly, you have to have solutions. You have to have a plan for institutional reform but he has nothing. It gets worse, believe it or not. President Biden, I can hear Democrats over the White House saying President Biden has had Republican support on a number of agenda items. He is trying to work in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, why not try to support that as a Democrat? You were just a de Democrat 10 minutes ago. Oh, uh, I support attempts to cross the aisle, but we can all see that seven out of 10 of the Republicans that bravely voted to impeach Trump are already going to be out of Congress by the time uh, January comes along. And the moderate population in both parties is unfortunately dwindling quickly. So the political incentives end up dis, uh, disproportionately empowering the 10% of extremes on both sides. But you're gonna have to come up with policy really positions. negative results. Right, so but we Andrew, just need a better system. Yeah, but Andrew, you're gonna have to have policy uh, positions at some point. How does the forward party feel about Roe versus Wade? Should it have been overturned? 
Well, I personally think that women's reproductive rights are fundamental human rights. But the forward party has not left or right, but forward stance on even the most divisive and contentious issues. Well, what does that mean? Don't you have to take a position on something? You don't you have to take a position on something. You can't just say, well, I, you well, know, this is like, a hot button issue, so I'm not going to take a position on you. You know, if you want to run the country, you're going to have to make some hard decisions, Andrew. Uh, again, the forward party is about that common sense consensus majority view, which is very clear on abortion. It's clear what about on guns. What guns. about it's assault weapons? On climate change. It's actually clear on just about every issue under the sun. Should 18 year olds be able to buy AR-15s? AR because of the nature of our system. Should 18 year olds be able to buy AR-15s? Again, the common sense consensus majority is that there should be some uh, rules around background checks and access to, to firearms. But we're not getting any of these things, Jim, because the two-party system does not need to deliver. But it doesn't sound any like you're taking any hard positions. It sounds like you're. Trade power. It sounds like you're you're sort of a fill-in-the-blank party. You you know if if somebody wants a, a a party with no clear policy positions, you're it. But unfortunately, in the real world, in the real world, you have to take a position on something. And that right there, my friends, is the exact moment where Andrew Yang's entire grift was exposed. That was just brutal. So he says the moderate population in both parties is unfortunately dwindling quickly. Really now? So the political incentives end up disproportionately empowering the 10% of extremes on both sides. First of all, what political incentives are you referring to? Second of all, do you honestly believe that there are just 10% of extremes on both sides? If we're going to claim that the social democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush are extremes within the Democratic Party. Sure, you can say that they're the extremes within the party. They're certainly not ideologically extreme compared to where the American people are at. But if you want to say with respect to the Democratic Party, sure, they're more extreme. I'll grant you that. But there are like 2% of extremists in the Democratic Party, whereas the Republican Party is comprised disproportionately of extremists. What, like, 97%, 98% if we really want to be charitable here. Most of the Republican Party are extremists. So how are you going to create this false equivalence where you have extremists on both sides? Not all extremists, so-called extremists, are created equal. The extremists within the Democratic Party, like AOC, Ilhan Omar, they want everyone to have health care. Whereas the extremists in the Republican Party, they want a Trump-led dictatorship. These extremes are not equivalent. They're not comparable. It's a false equivalence to say that they are the same. Now, when it comes to his stance on Roe v. Wade, he says, I personally think women's reproductive rights are fundamental human rights, but the forward party has not a left or right but forward stance on even the most divisive contentious issues. Now, my favorite part was when Jim Acosta said, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, when your platitudes are so vapid that you have a CNN host asking you, what does that even mean? You've got a problem. What does that even mean? So you literally claim that abortion is a fundamental human right. So if you admit that it's a fundamental human right, then just for the sake of being centrist, you're going to have to find some common ground between people who think it's a fundamental human right and people who think that it's murder. How do you find that common ground? I mean, see, this is the problem. This is the problem with trying to be a centrist fence sitter in 2022 American politics when it comes to the issue of gay rights. Well, there are gay people who think that they should have full equality, and there are Republicans like Ron DeSantis who thinks that they should be completely cleansed from society. They shouldn't be allowed to be themselves in schools. They shouldn't have equal rights. They shouldn't be allowed to marry. So how do you find the middle point there, the forward point, if you will? Do you just like 
give gay people some rights and then split the difference because either side isn't going to be happy. Gay people rightfully want 100% equality. They want full equal rights and the extremists on the right, they don't want them to have any rights. So how are you going to appease both sides when you have to choose in this instance? Either one side's going to be happy and the other side is not going to be happy. That's the way that this issue is going to, uh, to bear out. And look, taking the middle point just to be a centrist fence sitter in and of itself that's not great i mean imagine if you took this middle point during the civil rights era where it's like mm, you know some people think that segregation is uh good and others think it's bad maybe we just like desegregate a little bit how do you take this position i mean it's politically infeasible it's it doesn't make any sense it makes no sense whatsoever. Now, Andrian continues here. Again, the forward party is about that common sense consensus majority view, which is very clear on abortion. And also it's very clear on every issue under the sun. Well, if it's clear on the issue, what is its stance? But, but he said, oh, we're very clear on climate change and abortion. We won't tell you our position, but we're very, very clear. I, I mean, how? I, like, I don't even know how to process this interview. It's that vapid. Like. Where do you fall on the political compass? Like on the political compass, Andrew Yang is trying to create this Z axis and that Z axis is forward and one way is for good things and the opposite way is for bad things. That's that's like the only way I can try to visualize this incoherent ideology, but it's just it's it's complete nonsense. One more clip for you. In the real world, you have to take a position on something. Well, well, we're for the common sense consensus view on guns, abortion, climate change, but we're not getting a common but sense what, consensus. What are those positions? Any of those things, Jim. And those Americans are just are sort of a fuzzy, why. but it's those are fuzzy, nebulous. It sounds like you came up with something in a focus group. Uh, you know, common sense, you know, middle of the ground. That, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. But at the end of the day, don't you have to take a position on something? Well, the, the great thing is the American people know where we want the country to go. And what we know that we need a more dynamic, truly representative system than we're getting right now, which is why the Ford Party is growing so quickly. Tens of thousands of Americans have signed up in all 50 states because we know that the two-party system is getting worse, not better. And Who we is, know we need something new. Okay. We're for the common sense consensus view on guns, abortion, and climate change. And that common sense consensus view is what? Fill in the blanks for us. He, he doesn't want to do that. And Jim Acosta was correct that this is a fill in the blank party. If you don't necessarily want to, you know, support Democrats or Republicans and you're kind of this political outsider, which most Americans are, Andrew Yang is correct about that, then perhaps you just visualize what you hope the party will say when it comes to particular issues, which is why he's very apprehensive about taking a firm stance. It's insane to me, and yet he still claims that, no, 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 we're very clear on these issues. I mean, if you go to their website, there's there's basically no policies. There's one page with nothing but platitudes, and there's another page where he names three policies, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, and independent redistricting committees. Now, one more thing that I wanted to say about this uh, with regard to his solution. So he claims, or doesn't necessarily claim to be fair, but implies that in the event we had multiple parties, then that would solve the issues, right? Because the problem is that most people don't necessarily agree with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. But I mean, just having more parties, even if he were able to get institutional reforms to make that possible, it wouldn't be a panacea. There are other problems with our system, right? There's capitalism. There's a lot of things that you have to take into account when you look at the 
entirety of the American government. But just having more parties isn't a win in and of itself. I mean, some countries have a fuck ton of parties. Currently, right now, Brazil has, I believe, 40 active political parties, and their effective number of political parties is like eight or nine. Now, is Brazil really any better off than the United States? Just having more political parties isn't going to be the thing that changes our system. In some instances, it can create more problems because in Brazil, the parties don't really have a coherent political position. People create parties and leave parties all the time. So when you look at a, a particular political party in Brazil, aside from the largest ones, it's hard to deduce what they actually stand for because there are so many of them. So there is a good number, like a happy medium. And I think that, that number is probably like five to six. Germany, I believe, is a really good model for a political system that I would like to have. But Andrew Yang very clearly hasn't thought these things through. He hasn't consulted with political scientists. He's certainly consulted with, you know, people who do these focus groups, as uh, Jim Acosta uh, pointed out. But I mean, this is all just, this is embarrassing. I don't know what to say, but Andrew Yang, if you want to actually create a, a viable alternative to the Democratic and Republican parties, you're doing it wrong and you're going to just further expose yourself as the vapid grifter that people are already realizing you are. So, I mean, if you actually want to be an alternative, you have to take positions. You can't ride the fence. You actually have to say, this is our stance on abortion. But it's really difficult to do this because trying to find that middle point between Democrats, small d Democrats, and fascists is going to be very difficult. I mean, how do you how do you bargain with people who want Trump to be a dictator? How do you bargain with people who actually want to subjugate certain minorities in this country, LGBTQ plus people, people of color, to second class citizenship, who want women to not have control over their own bodies? How do you find the common sense center there? Do you base it specifically off of polling? Because that would be one way to do it. But he hasn't given us anything to work with here. It's just platitudes. And for that reason, the forward party is fucking a joke. And I think that more and more people are realizing that Andrew Yang himself is a joke, an opportunist, and definitely a grifter. In an interview with Fox News Digital, Donald Trump expressed concern over the increased temperature of the country that he helped to raise. Look, I'm not going to say that Donald Trump single-handedly increased the temperature of the country currently with regard to the FBI issue because there's a lot of propagandists on the right who have been doing just that. But Donald Trump... You know, it's really ironic, obviously, for him of all people to say this, because when you have this cult of personality surrounding you and you can easily work your voters, your supporters into a frenzy because they support you unconditionally and unwaveringly, then you know what you're doing if you continue to portray yourself as the victim. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It could be January 6th. It could be the election that he lost. Regardless, Trump is and always will be the victim. So when you continuously talk to your supporters as if you are the victim and the sky is falling and you're under attack and now some people like steve bannon are claiming that you're under threat of assassination then it shouldn't be surprising when your deranged followers start doing violence and that's exactly what we've seen so we'll talk about what he said but first there's a lot that transpired over the weekend when it comes to the fbi raid kerfuffle so the warrant was unsealed on friday and it was quite the bombshell so we learned that trump is being investigated for a potential violation of the espionage act and sources for the washington post claim that the fbi was looking for nuclear documents although this hasn't been confirmed yet 
But if this is true, this is very, very serious. So serious that people who are aligned with Donald Trump politically, Republicans, they don't really know how to spin this. So as the Rolling Stone reports, they're just kind of uh, like the Homer Simpson meme where he backs up into the bushes because they don't they don't know how to respond to this. There's also a lot of hysteria within Trump's close circle, as they learned last week of a potential mole who gave the FBI information that uh, no one other than really closely aligned Trump people would know. But my favorite part about this story is, after illegally taking classified information to Mar-a-Lago and refusing to comply with subpoenas, well, he was raided by the FBI, and now he has the audacity to say, hey, Bring back some of those documents. Excuse me? Can you imagine just a normal person getting raided by the FBI and then uh, demanding, bring it back. I want it back. I shouldn't say demand because maybe that's too strong of a word. But he created this post on Truth Social and the way that he worded this leads me to believe that he believes that his words here carry some sort of legal weight. He wrote, oh great, it has just been learned that the FBI in its now famous raid of Mar-a-Lago took boxes of privileged attorney-client material and also executive privileged material which they knowingly should not have taken. By copy of this truth, I respectfully request that these documents be immediately returned to the location from which they were taken. Thank you. Hmm, isn't it really frustrating when somebody takes something that doesn't belong to them and then they refuse to bring it back? Maybe Trump should try to subpoena them through uh, Truth Social. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. First of all, that post holds no legal weight whatsoever. It doesn't matter that you're a former president. Second of all, if there's something pertaining to uh, national security in your writings or in your correspondence between your lawyers they don't give a fuck like they genuinely do not care especially if you've taken nuclear documents they do not care at all that's meaningless to them they're going to take what they believe is going to assist them in this investigation so it's funny that he has the nerve to pretend as if they should bring this back to them be lucky that you're not in jail i mean again it, like it, it can never be lost on us the fact that this man genuinely believes that he is above the law and look he may get away with this. He may not actually be held legally accountable. He may never see a day in prison in his entire life. But I mean, just the, the sheer hubris here and the entitlement, it's just insane. Now, because he has been a complete crybaby, because you have members of the uh, corporate right-wing media fear-mongering about how this is now a new low for America and this is dictator level, um, well, of course, expectedly, there's now violence because of this rhetoric. As Peter Wade of the Rolling Stone writes, the FBI is experiencing an unprecedented number of threats against its agents and personnel after the agency searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort and removed a trove of sensitive documents CNN reported. FBI and Homeland Security emphasized extremists' growing threats to law enforcement in a joint bulletin published Sunday by CBS. The bulletin went on to add that the FBI and DHS have observed an increase in violent threats posted on social media against federal officials and facilities including a threat to place a so-called dirty bomb in front of FBI headquarters and issuing general calls for civil war and armed rebellion. Those threats are specific in identifying proposed targets, tactics, or weaponry, it said. The bulletin also mentioned people have doxed agents by revealing their personal information online. FBI and DHS have observed the personal identifying information of possible targets of violence, such as home addresses and identification of family members, disseminated online 
as additional targets. Late last week, conservative outlet Breitbart obtained and published a search warrant containing the names of two FBI agents involved in the search, potentially putting them in danger. FBI offices are also targets. Last week, an individual who was at the Capitol on January 6th, Ricky Schiffer Jr., attempted to break into the FBI Cincinnati headquarters. On Saturday, armed protesters gathered outside FBI offices in Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. So these folks are absolutely brazen. They're tried and true, back the blue folks, but the second law enforcement does something that they don't want, goes after someone for once that's on their side, well, all of a sudden, they don't just become full abolitionists. They actually threaten violence. They are just truly unhinged and insane. And this is a political movement that Donald Trump has created. It's not like right-wing violence it did not exist before Donald Trump. I just want to put that out there. But Donald Trump certainly has become the leaderhead of this fascist movement in the United States that is violently fascist. It's not just a proto-fascist movement. This is a violent fascist movement. Now, Donald Trump has an interest in not seeing another January 6th because in the event they stormed the FBI or did something horrible and people got hurt or killed potentially, this would hurt his chances. January 6th already hurt his chances for 2024. So if his supporters did something violent again, I mean, that could be the straw that broke the camel's back, assuming that January 6th was not the straw that broke the camel's back. And I mean, seems like it kind of wasn't, but we don't know. Either way, Trump decided to condemn this in an interview with Fox Digital. And as you're going to see, he spoke from both sides of his mouth. He said the country is in a very dangerous position. There is tremendous anger like I've never seen before over all of the scams and this new one, years of scams and witch hunts. And now this. There has never been a time like this where law enforcement has been used to break into the house of a former president of the United States and there is tremendous anger in the country at a level that has never been seen before other than during very perilous times. People are so angry at what is taking place. Whatever we can do to help because the temperature has to be brought down in the country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. The people of this country are not going to stand for another scam. So... He's clearly talking out of both sides of his mouth here, and he offered to help the Justice Department bring down the temperature somehow. I don't know why you need to collaborate with them to bring down the temperature. You can do that unilaterally by just saying, hey, folks, you know what? Maybe I overreacted. Perhaps what I did was illegal. I'm going to take some personal accountability, some personal responsibility here and just admit that maybe I shouldn't have done this. Perhaps I don't agree with what, what the FBI did to me, but, you know, I played my role, too. But he's not going to do that. He's going to continue to portray himself as the victim, call it a scam, as he did with the 2020 election, and then things will continue to escalate in this country as they always do. But the reason why he's even paying lip service to the idea that his supporters are becoming a threat to law enforcement is because, again, he wants some sort of plausible deniability in the event this turns into a January 6th or somebody gets seriously hurt or killed. So, you know, somebody was already killed. The individual who went into the FBI. But how bad is this going to get? I mean, it depends on the level of hysteria that we see from Donald Trump and his propagandists and his sycophants in mainstream media. But the thing is that, you know, as we learn more, they could look dumber. I mean, if this is really a situation where nuclear documents were taken, how could you possibly defend that? I mean, we will see defenses of it, but it's going to get increasingly difficult to convince the American people that he definitely needed to have this highly classified nuclear material, potentially, if it comes to that, that he could, you know, potentially give to 
Saudi Arabia or one of his international allies that, you know, scratched his back during his administration. And perhaps this is him scratching their back. It's hard to say what's going to happen, but he's right about the fact that very terrible things are going to happen, but he can control that. His supporters listen to him. So if he unequivocally condemns violence and tells his supporters to back down, they will listen. But if he doesn't, you have to assume it's because he wants violence, because violence done as at his behest could benefit him. But I think he probably knows it will hurt him more than anything when it comes to the next presidential election. So he's trying to play both sides here when, in the end, if he just shuts the fuck up and goes away, he could prove that he actually is serious about wanting to cool the temperature. But we all know that that's not what Donald Trump is going to do. So, yeah. Does everything tell you guys through through Hollywood, through through, you know, books, through through music, through through our entire culture is that that white men are bad. White men, you know, they're bad. They 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 have to be pushed to the back. They shouldn't be listened to. But what that's done to uh, your generation and and even a little some of those a little older than you and those definitely younger than you is it has created hopelessness in, in many of these guys. Hopelessness. They're lost. They, they grow up in a broken home or maybe a, just a really bad home. Um, no one is there for them as they're growing up. They spend time hours and hours alone. Uh, which is what do they do with their time when they're alone? They don't have an after school job if they're in high school. Maybe they don't, they probably don't play a sport. So they're spending hours and hours time alone, which turns them to all kinds of bad things, uh, porn on the internet, reading crazy stuff in, in chat rooms, and God knows who's in there and saying what they're saying. Um, a lot of time playing playing video games. And I know people don't like to demonize video games, but I, I do think that maybe has a role there for certain people. That was sitting Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene claiming that supposed discrimination against white men leads to them watching porn and playing video games. Okay, so I'm going to first have to preface this conversation with a citation needed. Uh, second of all, I have to say that as a white man myself, I don't think I've ever faced discrimination. In fact, I know I've never faced discrimination specifically because I'm white. I don't even think another white person has called me a honky. But yet, I still enjoy porn and video games. Perhaps I'm a degenerate for other reasons, but I mean, if she's claiming that there's this correlation here between discrimination and liking porn and video games, then how do you explain me enjoying porn and video games? Mom, I'm just kidding if you're watching this, by the way. I hate porn. It's disgusting. But how do you explain that? She just, she talks out of her ass and makes things up. Like, it's got to be really convenient to be a conservative because you don't ever have to look up your position. You just make it up. And then when people call you on it, you say that it's fake news. So what is, first of all, what is their uh, definition of discrimination for white men? What are some examples that they provide us with? Now, there's no concrete examples, no anecdotes, but she does say uh, one example, which is pop culture, I guess, priming people to think that white men are bad and pushing them behind. And really what it sounds like she's saying implicitly is, diversity because we see less men and we see more women and people of color well then that must suggest that white men are inherently bad 
Nobody thinks that unless you're a snowflake and you want to be perceived to be the victim. Just because more people have representation in culture, in politics, that doesn't inherently make you a victim. If greater representation for other people feels like oppression to you, that says more about you than the other people. But that's the only example that they provide us with here. Oh, well, yeah, uh, men are getting pushed back in culture. Okay. You're not, you're not providing us with any examples here. How exactly is this anti-white message covertly being delivered to us? Is it subliminal? It just, she says things and she doesn't think them through. It's just her entire view of the world is not, you know, um, driven by empiricism or facts or data. It's just her opinion. And her very stupid opinion, might I add. Now, the other problem with this is that she suggests that there's something inherently wrong with porn and video games. I mean, everything is fine in moderation, of course. But when it comes to video games in particular, there was a study that was just released that proves gaming not only boosts brain activity, but it leads to better decision-making skills. I mean, there's a plethora of benefits with gaming, not to mention it helps people to relax. That's why I love uh, video gaming. It helps me to relax. You know, I enjoy it. But according to her, it's inherently bad. I mean, this is, uh, you know, when you live in your own bubble so much that you never escape it, that you think that anything that is foreign to you, even something like video games. Well, you know, it must be bad because I don't like video games. Play one, maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll talk less and, and learn something from video games, perhaps history, right? Perhaps, uh, you know, you need these decision-making skills. So maybe you should play some video games, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'd recommend Elden Ring, but I don't think that you'd be capable of beating that. Not a lot of people are. I did though, but not to brag. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> I get caught up on video games. She also said something, uh, said something that stood out to me. She said uh, that another consequence of anti-white discrimination is reading crazy stuff in chat rooms. Oh, like QAnon? So uh, look, what she's saying here, like if you are a young man who feels isolated, I think that you could plausibly become radicalized by some far-right message board or, you know, subreddit or something of that nature. But she herself has become radicalized by message boards or, or Facebook groups, perhaps, because she's a QAnoner or a former QAnoner, but perhaps potentially a current QAnoner. So, I, I mean, I, I love how she says that that's a negative when she's been radicalized in the same exact way. If you go back to her videos before she was a member of Congress, she talked about how Q was a patriot. She was a, she was an actual Kool-Aid drinker when it comes to Q. Now, this interview it's really bizarre to me. I've got to point that out. And let me put on my tinfoil hat for a moment because the individual who interviewed her is an 18-year-old college student. And on his YouTube channel, he has 990 subscribers. And his very first video is a lengthy interview with Tucker Carlson. And just a couple of weeks later, he already scored an interview with a sitting member of Congress. That's kind of weird. So the question is, what right-wing billionaire decided to like wish this person into existence with a lot of money? Who has the connections that got this person prominence when they came out of nowhere? That's that's one thing that I think we need to keep an eye on because right-wing funders of these media outlets, they prop up these outlets. Like, I'd love to know how well a Charlie Kirk or a Ben Shapiro would do without all of this money behind them because people on the left, we actually have to survive without the funding of billionaires, believe it or not. Most of us don't even do advertisements. But yet, these right-wing people... 
they come into existence out of nowhere and they're interviewing members of Congress and, and prominent members of right-wing media. And that's a little bit sus to me. Now, one other topic that they touched on pretty prominently throughout the course of this entire interview was Christian nationalism. Now, yes, we talked about the stupid stuff in this interview, the dumb things that Marjorie Taylor Greene said. Um, it's always something that's going to be entertaining to me, but what's really an issue is the promotion of Christian nationalism. And Marjorie Taylor Greene on numerous occasions has promoted Christian nationalism, and this is a dangerous fascistic ideology. Now, I do want to address that because I think that's more important. I don't have another clip for you because I don't want to promote this right-wing YouTuber who's new to the game too much. But I do want to draw your attention to somebody who knows about this, and that individual is Benjamin Dixon. Now, he published an article on his Substack titled The Futurist Progressive that goes into great detail explaining the dangers of Christian nationalism. And I can't read all of it because it's really in-depth and long, but I do just want to share a couple of paragraphs because this is by far one of the most comprehensive pieces on Christian nationalism that I have ever read, and it directly ties Christian nationalism to white supremacy and the history of white supremacy, and it's very informative, and I would highly encourage you to check this out. But just to give you a little bit of a taste, let me read a few paragraphs here. Benjamin Dixon writes, With no regard for the unconstitutionality of their political crusade, this coalition of Christian nationalists is executing with precision a 50-year agenda to make America Christian again and to gain the power to punish sins with the force of the law. The case of Nebraska teenagers Celeste Burgess and her mother Jessica, who are currently awaiting trial for violating the state's ban on abortions, is an ominous shadow of what is to come. Each faction of today's conservative movement has fallen in line with the theocratic agenda to dominate every aspect of American society on behalf of the god of Christian nationalism, from the judicial activism of religious zealots on the Supreme Court to the violence of the January 6th insurrection. Conservatives, whether loyal to Donald Trump or to the Republican Party, have all made clear their intentions to rule America Despite democracy, God is simply a justification for their political ambitions. Christian nationalism has been for white men in America what religion was for European rulers throughout Western civilization, a dependable tool of justification for the political ambition of powerful men. God is even depicted as a white man for their convenience. It is in the name of Christ that hundreds of thousands were slaughtered throughout the Crusades and the Inquisitions. Religion was used to justify the enslavement of Africans in America. When black Christians prayed for deliverance from slave masters, they were praying to be delivered from the power of white Christian men. Are rational humans to follow this religious sect down a race to the bottom simply because disgruntled white Christian men feel entitled to control society even without a majority? Are we to be guided by men who cannot live up to their own moral standards but are so offended by addressing individuals by their preferred pronouns that they feel democracy must be overthrown? And we'll stop there. I don't want to read too much because I want you to read the article for yourself. I'll link to it down below. But yes, this is all really, really important. And it speaks to what Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to tackle here. I don't want to downplay this idea that men today, maybe perhaps they feel as if you know, they're isolated, they're alone. Social media does that to people uh, because this is a phenomenon that's happening, right? The rise of incels is something that I think is really a serious thing that we all need to take, uh, take notice of. But to address this, that doesn't mean that you impose Christian nationalism or theocracy on this entire country. There are underlying factors that lead to this current state of young men. And it's not just young white men. It's a lot of people in this country who are suffering under our current neoliberal late-stage capitalist regime. 
That's exactly what's driving a lot of this problem here. But for individuals who are very simple minded, they think, well, you know, you know, I, I see that there's problems in this country, so therefore the solution obviously is Christian nationalism. The problems that we face are obviously the result of God being driven out of the public sphere. In fact, that's what the host who interviewed Marjorie Greene said at the beginning of this interview. And Marjorie Greene was just grinning along, loving it, because she also agrees. You know, these individuals, they don't believe in applying a policy solution to public problems other than just saying, well, the solution must be God. Our education system is falling apart. That's because prayer was taken out of schools. What healthcare in this country is in shambles? Well, that's because we're not praying enough. I mean, the solution to everything for these people is more religion. And if we just have God intervene, their perception of God in particular, intervene in every area, every facet of life, every institution, well, then that's what's going to make things better. But that's delusional. Religion will only make things worse, especially this disgusting fascistic Christian nationalism. So that's all I have to say about this. Read Benjamin Dixon's article and laugh every time you hear Marjorie Greene open up her vile mouth because odds are she's either going to say something hateful or stupid. In this instance, she said something deeply stupid and I am always here to laugh at Marjorie Taylor Greene. You get to Congress, is it gonna be real? Are we actually gonna be willing to defund IRS, FBI, and things of that nature. Well, I mean, we have to. I mean, we're at a point in our country now where we have a unregulated fourth branch of government that's targeting middle-class Americans on a daily basis. I mean, it's unbelievable what we're seeing. You know, a lot of people have likened the situation that's going on right now as, you know, we're, they say we're in a banana republic. I think that's an insult uh, to banana republics across the country. I mean, at least the manager of banana republic, unlike our president, knows where he is and why he's there and what he's doing. I mean, we have a president right now that doesn't That was Bo Hines. Bo Hines is the Republican nominee for North Carolina's 13th congressional district and this individual is what you get when you order madison cawthorn from wish.com he's a little bit dumber than madison cawthorn not by much but their politics they're about the same roughly um now he's using a term that he's heard a lot lately but very clearly didn't understand and you know, you've heard this phrase being thrown around after Trump was raided by the FBI by Republicans who use that as definitive proof that we are indeed living in a banana republic, which also kind of confirms that they don't really know what that means as well. But he absolutely misunderstood what they were referring to when they used the phrase banana republic. So for those of you who don't know what that means, this is the definition of a banana republic. Banana Republic is an upscale clothing and accessories retailer owned by the American multinational corporation Gap Inc. Any questions? We have no, but in actuality, this is the definition of a banana republic. A small, poor country often reliant on a single export or limited resource governed by an authoritarian regime and characterized by corruption and economic exploitation by foreign corporations conspiring with local government officials. Now, emphasis on these types of countries being reliant on one particular resource. It's oftentimes known as the resource curse, although that usually refers to oil-rich countries like Venezuela and Nigeria. But in this instance, we actually are literally literally talking about bananas. Now, if you want the full story, I'd recommend Bananas by Peter Chapman, who details how the U.S. government brutalized Latin American workers at the behest of corporations like United Fruit, now known as Chiquita Bananas. Maybe you've heard of them. And they did this all so we can have access to Latin America's sweet, sweet bananas. Because why try to grow bananas in our colder climate in the United States 
when the bananas in the warmer climates in Latin American countries are much, much sweeter and more delicious. So delicious that the U.S. government was willing to do anything to get their hands on those bananas, get unlimited access to very cheap bananas. And when I say anything, I mean literally anything. So that's what a banana republic refers to, a regime propped up by the U.S. government to support the, the interests of American corporations. And one or a couple of government officials usually benefit from the spoils of that resource, and they have that incentive to stay in power. And even if they've lost the legitimacy of the people, well, they're propped up by the U.S. government, so they're essentially there in perpetuity unless there is a wide-scale revolt. So that's like the rundown. That's the broad, general, you know, um, definition of a banana republic. But the story is much deeper. I would highly encourage you to read Peter Chapman's work because it is very, very informative on this particular uh, issue. But let me just get to the question that we're all thinking. Does this make Bo Hines dumb for saying uh, or thinking rather that Banana Republic refers to the clothing store? I would argue no. Look, it's it's arguably a gaffe. It's it's silly. It's a little bit shocking that somebody who is 26 years old running for Congress doesn't necessarily know what that refers to. But either way, I don't necessarily think it makes him dumb. It just kind of makes him look uninformed. It's comparable to the Aleppo moment by Gary Johnson when he was asked about Aleppo and what he'd do about it on MSNBC. And he said, what is Aleppo? When, I mean, if you're running for a position of power, especially where you'll be in control of foreign policy, you need to know these things. You need to know where Aleppo is. You don't need to know this, just the average viewer. But I mean, if you're running for Congress, I, I think you should know these things. But I won't say that this makes him inherently stupid. What makes Bo Hines inherently stupid is his politics. Now, if you want to know about him, I think... You can learn all you need to know in this short clip. If you get elected, are you going to join, uh, are you going to attempt to join the Freedom Caucus, Bo? Yes, I, I will certainly be in the Freedom Caucus. So in essence, he'd be another Marjorie Taylor Greene. Lovely. We definitely need more of her. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that he's stupid. I, I'm not going to call him stupid inherently so, but his politics are unquestionably stupid. I mean, when there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene throwing around words like gazpacho, I can't say that anyone else is dumber until they give me more evidence. This is certainly, you know, evidence that he's uninformed about U.S. history and Latin American history and the way that we exploited them. But either way, I don't think it makes him stupid, just uninformed. But his politics, again, are deeply, deeply stupid. He's not only endorsed by insurrectionist Donald Trump, and he displays Trump's endorsement proudly on his website, but his policy positions... They're just pretty standard fascistic garb that we've seen from members of the Freedom Caucus or wannabe members of the Freedom Caucus. For example, every policy page links you to a donation, which is kind of weird. It seems like he's very desperate to milk his visitors for donations, and that's why he desperately wants you to get on his email list. But when you look at policies like, you know, um, traditions, he's a forced birther, he's against same-sex marriage, and if you get on his mailing list and you agree, then he definitely won't solicit more donations from you. He's also seemingly an election truther and in favor of more restrictions on voting, and if you agree, you can join his mailing list. And these are just some of his policies. He doesn't really have a fleshed-out policy platform as you can see from his platform page there's just a couple of icons that hints towards you know broader MAGA adjacent priorities but there's a lot of contradictions here he's seemingly a populist or wants to be perceived as a populist 
So he talks about how term limits are good. Okay, great, agree. And how corporations are bad, but yet he's an unapologetic capitalist, which is weird because if you believe that corporations are bad, then being just a capitalist bootlicker doesn't really line up with that ideology, but it's not the only contradiction because as you saw in the beginning of the video where he was asked, can we really defund the FBI? And he said, we have to. Well, just five days ago, he tweeted out that funding the police was one of his main priorities if he's elected to Congress. So, I mean, you want to fund the police, yet defund FBI. It's a bit of a contradictory view on law enforcement, is it not? So the overall, you know, answer to, to the question is, no, I don't think that that gaffe makes him dumb, but his antiquated draconian policy positions definitely makes his policies dumb. And the fact that he's aligned with someone like Donald Trump and wants to be part of the Freedom Caucus, which is essentially the fascist wing who's vocal about their fascism of the Republican Party, you know, it goes to show you that dumb or not, this individual is dangerous and he must be defeated come November. So there's been no shortage of absurd stories in post-Roe America that explains why abortion is necessary. But this story is perhaps one of the most absurd stories I've seen just because of the reasoning that we are going to see from forced birthers who are in very, very powerful positions. As Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams explains, reproductive rights advocates were outraged by a Florida appellate court's Monday decision upholding a trial judge's move to block a parentless 16-year-old from getting an abortion. Escambia County Circuit Judge Jennifer J. Frijai Chowitz recently rejected the unidentified teen's request for permission to bypass the parental notice and consent requirements under Florida law. A three-judge panel from the state's first district court of appeal upheld that decision, which critics called barbaric, flabbergasting, outrageous, and unconscionable. Judges Harvey J. and Rachel Nordby, joined part by Judge Scott McCarr, affirmed the decision of the trial court, which they said found the teen had not established by clear and convincing evidence that she was sufficiently mature to decide whether to terminate her pregnancy. So let that sink in for a moment. Multiple adult judges are telling this teenager that she's not mature enough to get an abortion, but she's absolutely mature enough to raise a literal child. Make it make sense because it doesn't. And the story is so preposterous that it seems almost unreal, but it's absolutely real. And I want to show you the ruling for that fact because it's so unbelievable. So Slate writer Mark Joseph Stern highlighted the portion of interest which reads, Appellate had not established by clear and convincing evidence that she was sufficiently mature to decide whether to terminate her pregnancy. So you have one circuit court judge basically saying this and then you have three appeals court judges confirming yeah we agree she's just not mature enough to get this abortion she hasn't sufficiently demonstrated that she is mature enough to do this so you raise that baby what the fuck is wrong with people in our legal system these are judges they had to go to law school i mean you have to at least demonstrate some level of competence to pass the bar exam and here they are saying no 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 this teenager has to give birth because she's just not mature enough to have an abortion it's genuinely idiotic and it gets worse because judge makar who's one of the three judges in this case praised the circuit court judge for the way that she handled this case with uh, compassion and concern those are the words that he used 
Now, when you look at the actual details in this story, as described by the judges who denied this abortion, specifically Judge Marker in this particular instance, I mean, it makes it seem completely bizarre that they would deny this girl the abortion that she's requesting when she has good legal reasoning for said abortion. So, as Makar detailed, the minor is almost 17 years old and parentless. She lives with a relative but has an appointed guardian. She is pursuing a GED with involvement in a program designed to assist young women who have experienced trauma in their lives by providing educational support and counseling. The minor experienced renewed trauma the death of a friend shortly before she decided to seek termination of her pregnancy. Her petition, a standard form that she completed by hand, stated two potential bases for a waiver under the statute. First, the minor states that she is sufficiently mature to make the decision, saying she is not ready to have a baby, she doesn't have a job, she is still in school, and the father is unable to assist her. Second, the minor states that her guardian is fine with what she wants to do, which would be a sufficient basis for a waiver of notice if other statutory requisites are met. But yet, multiple judges concluded, mm, sorry, you're just not mature enough for an abortion. Have that baby now. I don't even know what to say in response to this. These are the types of people who are making decisions about other individuals' bodies. In this instance, a teenager who is saying, look, I don't have parents, but my guardian is saying this is okay, okay? Can't have a baby right now, don't have a job, still in school. I can't. And they're saying, mm, too bad. You're just not mature enough for an abortion. What the fuck is wrong with this country? What the fuck is wrong with forced birthers? Their logic is so ass backwards. And even if I'm not necessarily surprised that multiple judges would come to this conclusion, you just expect at least some level of common sense from the people who are the arbiters of justice in American society, judges. But in this instance, two separate courts, the circuit judge and three appeals court judges said, nope, no abortion for you, teenager. Have that fucking baby. There are some stories where I'm just kind of speechless and don't really know how to respond, what type of commentary to offer, but, you know, this is definitely one of those stories because what do you even say to this? This is extremely stupid. If anything, these judges haven't sufficiently demonstrated that they are smart enough to be in that position of power. If you think that a teenager is not mature enough to have an abortion, but she's mature enough to have a baby, you're not smart enough to be on any court. I'm sorry, you shouldn't be interpreting the laws. You, you shouldn't be in that position. What the fuck are we doing? How are these people getting positions of power when they are that fucking dumb? I mean, I'm sorry. I don't need to know anything else about these judges. They're that fucking stupid if this is their rationale. I just, I don't know. I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. Now, for those of you unaware, the situation in Florida is that 15-week uh, abortions are banned. This was signed into law by Ron DeSantis back in April. So, um, I'm not necessarily sure whether or not this teenager has passed the 15-week mark or if she's within the 15-week mark but she uh, or a point, but she requires parental consent. I'm not necessarily sure about the specifics, but the, the rationale here, the legal rationale used by these judges is what I'm most concerned with. And the fact that they came to this conclusion and multiple judges all came together and thought, yeah, this makes sense. It just goes to show you this country is doomed if people like this continue to hold positions of power.
So we've talked about how the far right has terrorized teachers who were supposedly indoctrinating young people into the LGBTQ plus lifestyle as if that's a thing that you can actually do. But now they've switched their targets and they're focusing on doctors, specifically pediatricians at children's hospitals if they provide medically necessary gender affirming care to trans youth. And what they've done is incite harassment against doctors and staffers at several hospitals. And it's gotten so out of control that now someone could actually get hurt. Somebody might actually take action and hurt one of these doctors because of the hate that the far right has incited. So the biggest offender, predictably, is the hate account on Twitter known as Libs of TikTok. So over the course of the last week, they've made or shared 14 posts fear-mongering about the gender-affirming care that Boston Children's Hospital provides to their trans patients. Now, this predictably sparked harassment and death threats towards the staff, and knowing that this was the effect, what did Libs of TikTok do? Well, they continue to do exactly the same thing. Fear-mongering about the gender-affirming care offered this time at other hospitals, such as the Phoenix Children's Hospital. But Libs of TikTok was not alone because Matt Walsh, a self-proclaimed theocratic fascist, decided to join in, and he incited harassment against specifically the Boston Children's Hospital. Now, I'm going to play a clip put together by Media Matters, so they juxtapose what he says about the Boston Children's Hospital with a news report from just a couple of days later. Watch the way that his words incited harassment against this hospital. Today on The Matt Walsh Show, children's hospitals around the country are butchering, mutilating, and sterilizing their young patients. So according to Boston Children's Hospital, literally every toddler who has ever been born or will ever be born is trans. Now, if it seems like they're casting the widest imaginable net in order to catch the most children they can and put them all on a path to sterilization and butchery before they can even talk, well, that's because that's exactly what these monsters are doing. And they've done it up until this moment without much resistance from the public. But that has to end. We have to stop making it so easy on them. And that's why I'm in the very early stages of trying to organize a national coordinated effort to fight back against this evil. You know, it's really just a matter of where do we begin? Maybe we begin at Boston Children's Hospital. Boston Children's Hospital says its staff is being threatened and harassed now after far-right activists on social media posted misinformation claiming they perform gender-affirming hysterectomy procedures on young girls. The hospital says it's not true. They do not perform those procedures for anyone under the age of 18. Boston Children's Hospital says it is proud, though, to be home to the first pediatric and adolescent transgender health program in the United States. The hospital, though, now is working with law enforcement to try to better protect its staff in the face of these lies. That, my friends, is what we call stochastic terrorism. His words had a direct impact on that news story. And let's look specifically at what he said. Quote, we have to stop making it so easy on them. What do you think one of your lunatic viewers is going to take away after hearing you say that, Matt? We have to stop making it so easy on them. In other words, take action. He's trying to actually galvanize people to intervene and stop gender-affirming care that's being provided to trans youth. He also says, fight back against this evil. And maybe we begin at Boston Children's Hospital. There is no question that this is incitement. And he knew what he was doing. He knew, he knew what he was doing. 
and incitement is exactly what happened because the hospital was bombarded with harassment and death threats so much that they had to release a statement via Twitter saying, in response to commentary last week critical of our gender multi-specialty service program, Boston's Children's Hospital has been the target of a large volume of hostile internet activity, phone calls, and harassing emails, including threats of violence toward our clinicians and staff. We are deeply concerned by these attacks on our clinicians and staff, fueled by misinformation and a lack of understanding standing and respect for our transgender community. Now they go on to explain that the claim that they're performing hysterectomies on minors as a form of gender affirming care is completely false. And they state that they would not do this procedure on a patient under the age of 18. And it says this on their website in bolded letters. All genital surgeries are only performed on patients age 18 and older. So they're lying and they know that they're lying and they're not concerned about genital surgeries being performed on minors because if they were, they'd rally against circumcision. But let me tell you what this is about. This is about them hating queer people and trying to erase queer people out of existence. Now, if you're not familiar with the libs of TikTok account, this is the account that referred to the Trevor Project as a grooming organization. Now, the Trevor Project is an organization that tries to prevent LGBTQ plus youth from committing suicide. Now, this organization became prominent in the early 2010s following a plethora of LGBTQ plus teen suicides, starting with Tyler Clemente. And during this wave, children as young as 13, like Seth Walsh, died after being in a coma for nine days following an attempt to hang himself and he did this after being bullied by his peers because he was gay but according to libs of tiktok that's a grooming organization an organization that literally tries to save the lives of lgbtq plus youth and yet these people are trying to convince us that they're concerned with the well-being of these children no not at all and just to be very clear nothing that the boston children's hospital is doing is illegal or unethical, gender-affirming care has been studied for decades. And what they're doing is not only medically necessary, but they're doing what the medical consensus agrees is going to help trans youth. But they don't care because again, it's not about the facts to them. This is about hate. And that's why they incited harassment against the Boston Children's Hospital. Now, in particular, here's some of the messages that they received courtesy of Vice News. The hospital did not specify where the threats were coming from, but Vice News has uncovered some violent threats posted on far-right and extremist platforms targeting the doctors. Quote, long past time to start executing these doctors, a member of a pro-Trump message board formerly known as the Donald wrote under a copy of a video featuring a doctor from the hospital. This message board is the same one whose members last week doxed and made violent threats against the judge who signed the search warrant that allowed the FBI to search the home of former President Donald Trump. The forum's members encouraged one another to post negative remarks on the hospital's YouTube videos, which were ultimately removed as a result of the influx of comments. Another member posted the phone number of the hospital and encouraged others to call them on the phone. Quote, demons like this do not deserve to breathe. Crimes against humanity equals death, one Telegram user wrote under a link to one of the articles repeating the false claims. Quote, these people are psychopaths and should be locked up, another wrote. On both platforms, the doctors and hospital staff were referred to as pedophiles and and groomers attacks that have become a mainstay of Republican orthodoxy in recent months. So that's the result of their words. And they knew that this would happen, but they did it anyway because this is what they want. It's not just that they're spewing hate. They're literally inciting harassment against doctors at a children's hospital, at multiple children's hospitals potentially, but 
Boston Children's Hospital in particular, they really bear the brunt of this. But I mean, this is, again, it's not just hate. It's not just bigotry. This is stochastic terrorism. This is an incitement of harassment. This is not freedom of speech. It's not even hate speech. It's worse than that because they actually are trying to get people to take action against doctors who are providing care that again is medically necessary to trans youth. And no, that does not include bottom surgery on teenagers. Again, if you were an adult and you qualified for gender affirming surgery, bottom surgery, it's very difficult to get it in a country with a broken healthcare system like ours. Trans adults have a hard enough time getting bottom surgery because it's so cost prohibitive. So we don't have a universal healthcare system in this country. So to make it seem as if, you know, um, trans youth are willy nilly getting bottom surgeries, it shows you not just how ignorant they are about gender affirming care, but how stupid they are when it comes to our own healthcare system. They don't know how difficult it is to get any procedures in this country unless you have a lot of money. But that's what they're doing. It's not about the facts. It's not about the surgeries. It's not about the children. This is about trying to erase all queer people out of society, and it's happening socially and culturally through efforts like this, but also legislatively, where governors like Ron DeSantis are not only banning gender-affirming care for trans youth, but they're trying to medically detransition teens who have socially transitioned over the years. And when it, when it comes to social transition, we're talking about using different set of pronouns and dressing a certain way, but they're trying to control even that. This is what it's come to. And this is not going to end well, and it's not even the end of this. Like, this isn't as bad as it's going to get, because harassment and incitement of violence against LGBTQ plus people, drag shows, this has been a common phenomenon throughout the entire year. And it always stems from accounts like Libs of TikTok, from individuals like Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro. And if it continues to happen, somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to get killed, a doctor, a teacher, someone. And these accounts will have blood on their hands, but that's not going to get them to change their ways because that's the goal. It's not like they'd have a sudden change of heart if somebody actually did violence against a doctor. That's what they want. And, you know, it's not like it's out of the question to worry about a conservative killing a doctor because remember Tiller Tiller the baby killer? Bill O'Reilly for months incited harassment against an abortion doctor and he was murdered. So the same can happen here. And that's the goal. So this is not free speech. This is stochastic terrorism. And Twitter should not allow accounts like this on their platform. That is literally inciting harassment that could get someone killed. So it seems as if the wedge between the right and Joe Rogan is continuing to grow, presumably because he actually had a right-wing guest on his program, not surprising there. But what was surprising was that he pushed back against what this guest was saying, and it pertains to the issue of abortion, which Rogan has made very clear. He supports abortion, so good for him. So I'll give him credit for pushing back finally on something that a right-winger he brings on his show says, but I don't necessarily care that much about Rogan, like, I don't want to try to gauge where he's at ideologically and whether or not he sides with Republicans or Democrats. I'll give him credit where it's due. But ultimately, I wanted to talk about this particular clip because of the arguments raised by said guest, because they're so 
mind-numbingly idiotic that I, I can't not respond to them. Now, the guest that I'm referring to here is Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Babylon Bee, they're kind of like The Onion, wherein they're a satirical news website. The difference is that they're not funny and they've never been funny. For example, here's a couple of bangers. Pete Davidson confirmed as next James Bond. Hilarious stuff here, guys. Here are the winners of the Babylon Bee's Women of the Year. And they have The Rock and Colin Kaepernick and Spongebob. Get it? LOL. Because trans women exist. So, <laughs> this is great. Report. Go to church, you heathen. Ooh, this one's really edgy. AOC to vote against making daylight savings time permanent, saying Americans consume too much sunlight already. Okay. Now, I kid you not, this was under their greatest hits section on their website. Quote, Bernie Sanders arrives in Hong Kong to lecture protesters on how good they have it under communism. <laughs> so fucking hilarious. Just bangers. So, Seth Dillon is going to talk to Joe Rogan about abortion, and Joe Rogan is going to push back specifically because of what Seth Dillon says and how egregious it is. Let's watch. There's also women who have been raped who should not have to fucking carry some rapist baby there's women who have been sexually assaulted before the age of 14. there's also hold on though but hold on there's don't also, stop me okay you that's real too there's and we all have to agree we have to agree on both of those things there are also though i'm not i'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that point but i will say there are people who have been born of rape and are alive right now and are pro-life and they go around speaking talking That's about how great. I had a right to live and they, and they will go out there and make an argument a pro-life case and they're a rape they're the, a born of a rape you don't have a right to tell a 14 year old girl she has to carry a rapist baby I'm you just saying just that don't. I'm but just saying that's real you're too. saying yeah I understand what, I understand you, what you're you saying with, what I'm saying like you don't have the right to tell my 14 year old daughter she has to carry her rapist baby you understand to that? look that woman in the eye who's who was the but born listen, of a rape. Do you understand that that's a 14 year old child I if you a 14 year old child gets raped you say that they have to carry that baby I don't think two wrongs make a right I don't think that's murder, not, I, don't I don't think, think murder is an answer to I don't think murder fixes a rape so what he did there was tacitly endorse violence against women he said I don't think that a murder fixes a rape so murder being the worst crime the implication is that the girl in this hypothetical situation who was raped is more evil than the rapist for choosing to have an abortion that's the implication that's the subtext. And it's so gross. Imagine arguing to an audience of 11 million that a child who is the victim of rape should not have the choice to get rid of the rapist baby. And again, I just want to remind everyone, most of the abortions that are performed in the United States, they happen very early in the stage of pregnancy. So we're talking about zygotes. We're talking about clumps of cells. And he's saying, no, no, no. To have an abortion, that's worse than the act of rape itself. That's the implication, at least. And that's sick. I, 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 can't even, I, I can't even respond to that without just vocalizing my disgust. You, you're a gross person if you actually think that women should be forced, and girls should be forced, to have their rapist's baby. And look, this is part of the evangelical ethos. When I was a young child, I was indoctrinated into religion, and I specifically remember this woman who came to speak at our church, and she talks about how she was the survivor of abortion because her mom was raped when she was 13 years old, and her mother could have had an abortion, 
but she did not. And when I was younger, that really resonated with me because I thought, oh, wow, you know, it's so glad that she's here. But as I grew older and I, I thought back about that story that she told, I realized how absurd it was inherently so because it's not like you were watching. Like, it's not like, you know, any of us choose to be here. It's not like we're floating on clouds and we're watching, you know, uh, our parents and we're just saying, oh my God, please save me, please, please save me. Or, you know, you're, you're crossing your fingers, hoping that your parents breed so you can exist. You weren't around, so how is that traumatizing to you? I mean, your mom should have had the choice and she did have the choice. She had the choice to have you despite the rape at that very young age. But what these people want to do is take away the choice so that way every single woman and girl who is raped is forced to have their rapist baby. And that's just so morally reprehensible that these people should never be taken seriously. I mean, sure, what if, you know, that person who's here today who's the product of rape was aborted? Nobody would be sad that they weren't here because we wouldn't know about their existence because they wouldn't exist. Like, if my parents chose to not have me then I couldn't be mad at them because I wouldn't exist. I wouldn't have the capacity to be mad. Like, we're dealing in really weird what-if hypotheticals. I could say the same thing. Well, like, I might have not existed today if my mom had an abortion. Was she considering it? I don't think so, at least. If she did, would I care today? No, because I'm here and that's all that matters. Maybe we should take care of people that are here currently, that exist right now. But imagine, like, thinking that you're some sort of a victim because... You were this close to not existing. Like maybe your dad chose to come inside of a mouth or an asshole, you know, instead of uh, conceiving you. I mean, look, are we supposed to feel sadness for all of the sperm that is disposed of on a tissue? Those are all potential lives. I mean, what if that could have been a life? What if there's people here today that could have been on tissue and never could have been born? What this all comes down to is them trying to find some way to justify forcing girls to give birth to their rabies babies. And that is absolutely detestable. These people are sick. And to justify it by playing the what-if game is really sick and twisted. The point is that we give women and girls the choice to do with their body what they want and not say, actually, you don't get to have an abortion because that's murder. You would honestly say that to the victim of a rape? What is wrong with you? And again, you'll find people who will say, look, I, my, my mom was raped and I'm here because of the rape. And sometimes they'll use that to justify their pro-life position. But other people on the opposite side can do the same thing. Look, I'm glad that my mom ha had that choice. I'm glad that she chose to have me. But ultimately, I'm glad that women have this choice because of how traumatic rape is. It ruins lives. It's no small thing. And perhaps it's difficult for men, men to grapple with how horrifying rape is, even though men, you know, are victims of rape as well. But like in this instance, when we're talking about, you know, pregnancy being a consequence of rape, perhaps they can grapple with how traumatic that is. But it's just, it's really sickening. And not to mention, like when they're talking about a 14-year-old there, having a baby could kill a 14-year-old. But again, it's like these people time after time, when given the choice between the woman's life or the girl's life and the fetus, nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, they side with the fetus because that is more important because what if? It's so weird. Like, I would like to ask Seth Dillon, and perhaps Joe Rogan asked this question. Do you ever feel guilty when you splooge onto a tissue? 
and think, wow, that could have been my son. Had I splooged in the correct place, that could have become a human being someday. Like, do you ever feel guilty yourself or is it just women who have to bear all of the burden of what could have been or who could have existed or who couldn't have existed? Do they ever turn this around and think, man, I just killed millions of sperm by jacking off. It was like five minutes and I just committed a genocide. Do they ever have this thought? Like, I just want to know what goes through the heads of these folks because it's so bizarre to me the way that they think. So, yeah, <laughs> that's Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. And you wonder why, you know, they're so funny over there because, yeah, that's the mentality. 14-year-olds should be forced to carry their rapist's baby. Sick, twisted, but completely expected. Parents in Florida were outraged that Matt Gates was scheduled to speak at a high school, in person, around high school children. Yeah, so their outrage is completely understandable. This was the annual Academy Nights at Niceville High School, an event where students would be given resources about how to get into service or military school, and Matt Gates was among the individuals who were there to provide the students with resources. Not really the best person who you'd want to be engaging with students, especially high school girls. Nonetheless, he was there, the event took place, but uh, here's what parents had to say about that before this event took place. As Newsweek explains, Florida GOP Representative Matt Gates, who is being investigated by the Justice Department in connection with the sex trafficking of a 17-year-old girl, has sparked outrage after it emerged he would host a high school event in his state. The allegations against Gates and his slated appearance at Niceville High School prompted Kara Marion, a candidate for the Okaloosa County School Board, to ask, what message are we sending our kids? Marion added that numerous people had contacted her about Gates' scheduled appearance at the school, specifically specifically regarding the federal investigation he is under. In a video uploaded to Facebook on Saturday, Marion said, these are men and women who have gotten a hold of me actually. And so what they've said is they're very displeased with the fact the Okaloosa County School District is agreeing to have Matt Gates, who is under investigation for sex trafficking. She later added, so it's very confusing when you have a congressman who's under investigation for crimes against children to come into our high school and talking to young women and young men, it sends a very mixed message message. Yeah, I'll say. Now, they weren't against Matt Gates speaking to high school students because they have a partisan disagreement with him. They don't like his policies. They don't like that he's a Republican and they're Democrats. They were specifically against him because of the potential danger that he poses to children, specifically high school girls, given that he is currently under investigation for allegedly sex trafficking a minor high school age. So the fact that the school district would invite him to speak at this event is incredibly irresponsible. Now, I'm not sure if they invited him or if he tried to weasel his way in. Either way, he potentially poses a danger to these children. So for them to allow him access to children is completely unacceptable. And if I were a parent, I would be fuming. So, of course, lots of parents spoke up, but it's not just the potential danger that he poses. They also don't want him around young girls because of the message that it sends after he just recently was condemning, you know, young girls for their looks if they support abortion and whatnot. So let's get to that portion. Marion added that Gates's previous comments about women, most notably when he made remarks later called misogynist about abortion rights activists to an audience at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit in Tampa, Florida last month, had raised further 
further concerns for her. The school board candidate added, I'll tell you right now, if my daughter was looking to go to a service academy, I would not want to be having her work with Matt Gates." just from literally the comments he made about women who men wouldn't even want to sleep with them so they wouldn't even get pregnant to even consider having an abortion because he said they look like a thumb, she added. She continued, but to put kids in a position where they are going to have to ask this person for a favor, if you will, hey, can you pick me? What message are we sending our kids? Yeah, and look, to be completely honest, I would have a problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking to high school students. This is a vile individual. She lies. She's deceitful. She incites harassment against marginalized people. But that alone, you know, if that doesn't make you think twice about inviting someone like this, this divisive, to a high school event, the fact that Matt Gage, you have that added issue of him being under investigation for alleged sex trafficking of a minor, it just makes matters so much worse, but the plot actually thickens. Because a viral post on the subreddit 2X chromosomes uh, details how one person actually sent a letter to the superintendent of this particular school, and when he got back to her, well, he challenged her on her objections about having Matt Gates, and she later found out in an update that there was this massive conflict of interest because Matt Gates revealed that he's actually friends with the superintendent that she talked to, who, by the way, was defending his appearance here. So what exactly is going on here? Was he invited because he's in cahoots with people in this particular school district? Why exactly was he granted access to high school children? That's a question that we should all be asking. This conflict of interest should not exist, right? And even if there is that conflict of interest, if you know someone who's under investigation for allegedly sex trafficking a minor, perhaps you might reconsider him as a guest because of the optics at a minimum. But no, this superintendent challenged this individual with actual concerns, with, with reasonable concerns. Is that not completely insane? I mean, Jesus Christ. Now, there thankfully was a lot of pushback at the event because the Facebook group Women Against Matt Gates, which has now more than 10,000 followers, announced that it was going to hold a press conference outside of the event, which they did, and they wanted to address the safety of students and also demand that Congress suspend any events that Matt Gates will have going forward with minors, given the potential danger that he poses to them. But regardless of the protest, regardless of the objections raised by parents, he spoke anyway. I mean, isn't Florida the state that's all about parental authority, parental autonomy? Well, apparently not, because when it comes to potentially endangering children, they're not going to take those concerns seriously. It's just, it's ridiculous. Now, look, to be very clear, we don't know if Matt Gates does pose a danger to children, but there's that open question. There's concerns, rightfully so, while he's currently under investigation. If it is the case that the Justice, Justice Department concludes their investigation and they determine that he's not culpable here, then fine. But currently, when we don't have that information, when we're working with incomplete details here, when we know that one of his buddies, who he was in contact with, was convicted... I'm sorry, this is just completely unacceptable. So, the parents have a right to protest, the parents have a right to raise objections, and anyone involved with confirming his appearance here should be ashamed of themselves because this is completely unacceptable, completely disgusting, and Matt Gates should be nowhere near high school children until we can confirm that he doesn't pose a danger to them.
So before on the show, I've talked about how there absolutely is a right-wing victim complex. They love to portray themselves as the victims, even when it's completely inappropriate to do so. But there's a reason for this. Sure, it suits their political narrative, but they do this because this opens the door to their grift. We're going to talk about a grift that Donald Trump is doing by explicitly portraying himself as the victim after his FBI raid. But think about this in broader terms. So whenever some right-wing commentator on YouTube gets banned for a week or demonetized, what do they do? They say, this is an attack on free speech. Donate to help me fight back. Like it's all part of their way to make money and milk their supporters. But Trump is the highest example of that. So what he did after he was raided by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago was milk his supporters for millions and millions of dollars and he used this playbook before but it worked once again flawlessly so as josh dossie and isaac armsdorf of the washington post report former president donald trump bombarded his supporters with more than 100 emails asking for money based on the fbi search of the mar-a-lago club for classified materials last week they paid off contributions to trump's political action committee topped one million dollars on at least two days after the august 8th search of his palm beach florida estate according to two people familiar with the Figures. The daily hauls jumped from a level of 200,000 to 300,000 that had been typical in recent months, according to the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss non-public information. The donations stayed unusually high for several more days and are still above average. Both of these people said, though they have leveled off in recent days, there are more contributors than usual, these people said, and the average donation has climbed. So even though he did something bad by refusing to give back classified documents, refusing to comply with subpoenas, he still found a way to portray himself as the victim. But for people to buy into this victimization narrative, he has to prove that this isn't just about him, it's about us, and perhaps it's an attack on them as well. So let's get to some of these emails, because they are so brazen. I can't believe that anyone falls for this. But one says here, The lawlessness, political persecution, and witch hunt must be exposed and stopped. Please, Russia donation immediately to publicly stand with me against this never-ending witch hunt. Another one says here, Friend, what recently took place at my Mar-a-Lago home was an unprecedented infringement on the rights of every American citizen. So understand, this is an infringement of not just his rights, but your rights as well. Really interesting how he did that little bit of a switcheroo here, if you will. Another one says, but they will never win, not as long as I have you on my team. Donate now to Trump's official defense fund. So, you know, them contributing is crucial to Trump being successful. Yes, the individual reading that email. Final one I've got for you here. This is political targeting at the highest level. Please contribute $5 or more right now to bolster our official Trump defense fund and get on the donor list. So by reading some of these emails, some of the 100 that he sent, he makes it seem as if this is bigger than just $5. They're part of a movement. They're part of the movement to save Donald Trump and by extension, save the country. And this, you know, is about them as well. Trump had his Mar-a-Lago estate raided. So perhaps one day they'll have their literal resort raided. I mean, like, they're not thinking this through, obviously. But the problem is that, sure, you're getting scammed here, okay? Sometimes it happens to people. But this isn't the first time that Trump has milked his supporters. So, during the 2020 election, when he was claiming fraud, he milked his supporters again, but much, much more. And even after he could no longer legally challenge 
the actual election because he exhausted all of his legal options and lost over 60 cases in court. He was he was still saying donate to our defense fund. And Trump's people was forced to admit that, yeah, there was really never a legal defense fund. It was just marketing. In other words, it was a scam. They were scamming people. And this was all revealed at the January 6th public committees. Take a look. We'll watch a really quick segment of them explaining the way that he scammed his supporters with lies. Between Election Day and January 6th, the Trump campaign sent millions of fundraising emails to Trump supporters, sometimes as many as 25 a day. The emails claimed the, quote, left-wing mob was undermining the election, implored supporters to, quote, step up to protect the integrity of the election, and encouraged them to, quote, fight back. But as the select committee has demonstrated, the Trump campaign knew these claims of voter fraud were false, yet they continued to barrage small-dollar donors with emails encouraging them to donate to something called the Official Election Defense Fund. The select committee discovered no such fund existed. I don't believe there is actually a fund called the Election Defense Fund. Is it fair to say the Election Defense Fund was another, I think we've called it a marketing tactic? Yes. And tell us about these funds as marketing tactics. Uh, just the topic matter, uh, where money could potentially go to be, how money could potentially be used. The claims that the election was stolen were so successful, President Trump and his allies raised $250 million, nearly $100 million in the first week after the election. On November 9th, 2020, President Trump created a separate entity called the Save America PAC. Most of the money raised went to this newly created PAC, not to election-related litigation. The select committee discovered that the Save America PAC made millions of dollars of contributions to pro-Trump organizations including $1 million to Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' Charitable Foundation, $1 million to the America First Policy Institute, a conservative organization which employs several former Trump administration officials, $204,857 to the Trump Hotel Collection, and over $5 million to Event Strategies, Inc., the company that ran President Trump's January 6th rally on the ellipse. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing. The evidence developed by the select committee highlights how the Trump campaign aggressively pushed false election claims to fundraise, telling supporters it would be used to fight voter fraud that did not exist. So you're probably thinking, why would these people, after getting ripped off by him and learning that he never had a legal defense fund, it was just all going to his organizations and, and whatnot, why would they donate again now with the FBI search? Because perhaps this won't go towards that as well. Well, the answer to that question is they probably didn't watch the January 6th committee. And in the event they saw any of the committee hearings, do you think they're going to believe that? Because again, this is bigger than Donald Trump. This is this coordinated effort by the deep state and the establishment. Not that Trump isn't part of the establishment. He totally is. But this is a coordinated effort by elites excluding Trump, to bring him down and, by extension, bring all of them down. And, you know, on one hand, I do feel bad that these folks are getting scammed multiple times by Donald Trump. But on another hand, I mean, if you haven't learned your lesson, my sympathy is drying up for you. I mean, it's it's like there's a saying for this, right? Maybe a different former president and war criminal can uh, help jog my memory. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. 
It fooled me. We can't get fooled again. A classic, an absolute classic. Now, the thing about Donald Trump is it's not like these scams that he's conducted while he was in a position of power and is currently an ex-president seeking a second term. Um, it's not like this is a new phenomenon. Before he was elected to office, he paid a $25 million settlement to attendees of his fake college, Trump University, and he defrauded these individuals and tried to upsell even more services to them once they already were attending his so-called university. And as I talk about this scam, we learned just today, as Common Dreams reports, former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weiselberg on Thursday pleaded guilty to 15 felonies related to tax fraud in New York State Court and is set to serve only five months in jail on Rikers Island if he testifies during the trial of the ex-president's family business. Today, Alan Weiselberg admitted in court that he used his position at the Trump Organization to bilk taxpayers and enrich himself, said Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg in a statement. Instead of paying his fair share like everyone else, Weiselberg had the Trump Organization provide him with a rent-free apartment, expensive cars, private school tuition for his grandchildren, and new furniture, all without paying required taxes. This plea agreement directly implicates the Trump Organization in a wide range of criminal activities activity and requires Weiselberg to provide invaluable testimony in the upcoming trial against the corporation, Bragg continued. So everyone in Trump's orbit is a fraud and Trump is a serial scam artist and he used his presidency to elevate his fraud and his scams to unprecedented new levels. And regardless of how many times, you know, his supporters may or may not learn that there's really no defense fund for him it works because it's marketing. This is about money making. So Trump doesn't care about his supporters. This is all about milking them dry, but they don't care because they genuinely believe that he's fighting for him. And while he was president, he delivered for them. Even if he literally was pretty brazen about just doing the bidding of elites, he cut taxes for himself and his rich buddies. But yet, you know, when you're in this cult of personality, you don't necessarily let facts penetrate that bubble. So, so long as this cult of personality exists and Trump can, he will continue to rip off and scam his supporters. But I mean, if they're going to continue to fall for it, I have no sympathy for them. Do better. Stop being so fucking gullible, maybe. I don't know. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube means tv and facebook you can also find audio versions of the show on spotify apple podcasts soundcloud iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms and before you go consider supporting the show on patreon or through youtube memberships you'll get early access to most videos invites to monthly live chats with mike and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode there are other ways to support the show you can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.